Hello and welcome to Behind the Hospital Curtain, the NNUH podcast, where we talk about different healthcare topics. I'm Susie Hawes and today we're discussing the importance of health research. I'm asking why it's important we do it, how our patients can take part, what's involved in clinical trials and how they shape and continue to help improve healthcare both here and around the world. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Louise Koch, and I am the lead research nurse for commercial and strategic partnerships at the NIHR Norfolk Clinical Research Facility. And I'm Amy Nichols, and I'm the senior clinical research nurse for the women's and children's team at the Norfolk and Norwich. So I guess that my first question is really, why is it important that hospitals do lots of research? I think the main point to mention, it has been evidence-based that hospitals that are research active have better outcomes for patients. So that's a, a significantly good reason in the first place. I guess as well, is it good for the staff, like good for clinicians to give them opportunities to do research for, in terms of their own careers? It is. It is good for um, for the staff. It's quite tricky because the clinical staff are so busy that it's very, very difficult for them to become engaged in research. And it's very much the delivery team who it's their responsibility to try to engage the, the clinical staff um, and educate them to know what research is going on. At the end of the day, our target and our goal as, as a clinical research delivery team is to eventually offer a research pathway for every single patient who enters this hospital. Because if we can achieve that goal, then we will really have so many, so many better outcomes for our, our patients here and the broader, you know, our society. Yeah, the future generation. Absolutely. Healthcare is is fabulous in this country, and if all research ground to a halt today, it would still be fabulous tomorrow and the day after, but we wouldn't be any further forward in 10 years. We are where we are today because of what we did research-wise a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's forever evolving, and it will continue so long as research is out there. Everything we do is evidence-based. Everybody is is a specialist in their own area and it's normally the people on the ground doing the job that have the best questions um, and they make the best researchers, the, the, the best PIs, you know, someone that is dressing this wound every day with the question like, why are we using this dressing rather than this dressing? You know, has anyone actually compared the two? That is potentially a research question there, comparing one uh, method of, of performing an operation against another method. Uh, sometimes it varies from hospital to hospital, isn't it? Trust to trust or region to region because of clinician preference. The best way to find out is to ask the question and uh, create a research protocol to accurately find that answer, to evidence that question. And so when we think about how much research we do here at the NNN, do we do a lot compared to other trusts? Like, how good are we at research? Well, it depends who you want to compare us to. But for a hospital of the size that we are, um, we do an awful lot of research and it covers a broad spectrum as well. 
you could probably safely say that most specialties have some type of research happening in that area. How much at any one time, like how many studies could there be? Or is it too hard to say? I guess it's always changing. It is always changing. Um, it's something that we looked at a few months ago and we worked out that on any given day, from our delivery team, uh, from the people working in the clinical research um, team, we have between 150 and 200 trials running every day, but that's excluding the individual trials that are being carried out by any other healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, pharmacists. There are many other trials that are going on in the background. Maybe they get their own funding from other sources to enable them to do their own in-house research in their area. So that's not including that. And I'm pretty sure that's vast yeah. as well on top of our kind of 200. So the funding for the studies that you've just mentioned, then it, it's national funding, isn't it? It comes from the National Institute of Health and Research. Is that right? Funding varies, actually. Um, we have a vast variety of where our funding comes from. Um, a large chunk comes from the clinical research network across each region. Um, we have a lot of homegrown studies where clinicians, doctors, uh, they apply for grants and that will help to run, uh, create and run their, their studies. Uh, we also have some really good links with bigger commercial studies that bring in a lot of income. Um, plus obviously our strategic partners such as the, the Quadrum Institute of Biosciences and the Research Park and, and even the, the UEA which is on our doorstep. So moving on and thinking about if you're a patient, well, first of all, what's the benefit to a patient to be involved in a research study? There's lots of benefits to patients. It depends on the study that you're going into. Some may directly benefit you. For example, you might be getting a treatment that is otherwise unavailable um, to you. That happens quite a lot in oncology studies um, where you've come to the end of the, the available resources that the patient pathway offers. So this is the next option. Um, same for funding wise, it might be that the drug's not available on the NHS, but you can through the, the research study because it's provided by the drug company. So you might get a direct benefit that way. A lot of it is indirect. Uh, a lot of patients, I would often ask this question of my patients, why do you want to get involved? And the majority respond that they want to give something back. They want to make sure that the answers are there for their children and their grandchildren later down the line. Yes, about helping future generations as much as it yourselves. I also feel that um, if you're on a research study, if you're a participant in a research study, your patient journey is, you're more involved with the clinician. So you get, one of the benefits from my perspective is you see a nurse more frequently. You may have more scans, you might have more blood tests. So you're looked at in a much more intricate way than if you were just on a generic patient pathway, which obviously it's best practice. But we look in more detail when we're following a research study because we need to know yeah, what's going on. A lot of our patients will phone us up directly. Yeah, and you, you don't often have that. If you're on a waiting list for an operation, you don't always have that going-to person. Whereas we're in constant contact, you know, it tends to get to, yeah, we're on first name terms with them and know about their journey. 
inside out. It's a definite benefit to the patient. I also think that that's one of the privileges of being a research nurse as well, mm. is actually you get to follow patients through. You really get to deliver the care that you trained to want to give. Um, and in some areas, we, we all know that it's an exceedingly busy role being a, a nurse. And so this it's also a busy role in different ways, but you are able to deliver the care that you trained to give. In terms of the studies, I guess this is, might be a silly question because I guess they're all different, but is there a typical answer to what's involved? You know, is it like you've just mentioned scans and blood tests? Um, could it be that a patient comes in and has one and then is you know, reviewed however many months later or do some people come really regularly? How, how does it work? It, it does vary greatly depending on the study. Um, all participants will be offered an information sheet. The study will be um, explained to them in depth. They will be given time to go away, read the information sheet, chat about it with their family, friends, get some opinions from other people um, before making their decision. Um, they will be asked to consent to the the study which will be formal and written um, but the actual in-depth what what it involves depends on the study some are observational so we are literally following the patient on their journey and collecting data that they would be having anyway um, others are more interventional where we're adding something in such as a new medication or a new device some require a lot of additional visits and they come in over a, a course of time. It might be a short-term thing, it might be a long-term. Some of our um, oncology participants are followed up for upward of 10 years. Yeah, I was going to say, some are, I think you, you hear, don't you, sometimes they can be 10, 20 years, you know, yeah. big ones. Some of our studies also are opt-out studies, so we don't actually need to get written consent from participants or families. Uh, if it's a straightforward data that we want to collect or, or an intervention that we're just trying to find out which way is better, then we have to let the um, potential participants know that this is happening and we will tell them that we'll go ahead with either this or this unless they specifically say, we don't want you to do that. Just, you know, whoever is doing my care, let them do it the way they want to do it. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I thought it was all opt-in rather than some opt-in note. No, that's quite new, I think. They would always be on for Yeah, they could wait. Yeah, it would never be anything that they didn't know about. Yeah. And is it always a case that it's the clinician, so say there's, I don't know, I don't know, rheumatology outpatient appointment, would a consultant say, oh, at the minute we've got this trial and you might be a good candidate. Is that how patients hear about it? Or can they, or can they ask at their appointments? Can they say, hey, doc, is there any research going on? We'd love them to. Do they do that? Do many people they, do it? They do, most definitely. And um, and it's not it's not just doctor-led anymore. Um, the information should be readily available for everybody. Um, we've literally just started updating all of our websites recently so that the information is at hand for anyone looking for it. There is a national database called Be Part of Research that anybody can sign up for. And it literally asks for some quite basic details so that when certain studies come up, they are informed of them, they send some information, and then they can choose whether or not they want to make contact and, and take part. And 
we have a lot of research champions in various different roles of lot uh, different um, bandings. So I would highly encourage anybody, if you're walking through the door in hospital, whether it be through the emergency department or for a planned outpatient clinic or even collecting a, a family member, just ask the question, What is there any research available to me at the moment in relation to this condition, for example? And ask the question. If they don't know, it will prompt them to find the answer for you. Do you ever find it difficult to recruit patients in certain groups or for certain studies if there are certain sensitivities? I would say there are certain groups in which it is more difficult to recruit because of the sensitivities of why they're in hospital. Obviously, my profession is neonatal and intensive care and approaching parents of a baby who is born 16, 17, 18 weeks early and being, you know, as part of the protocol, you have to recruit and randomise that patient within 12 hours of birth. Wow. Yeah. Now that is tricky. That doesn't tend to be the nurse's role. That tends to be the consultant's role because it's an extremely difficult, sensitive situation to be, because because those babies are very vulnerable. Yeah. We don't know whether those babies will make it. So those, it's, it's, Probably everybody's worst nightmare, having a baby born, yeah. you know, at that gestation. Yeah. So then if you've got a research team coming and asking if we can test our drug to see whether or not it's beneficial for their baby or future babies, yeah. obviously all of the safety, ethical approvals are explained um, and everything's very detailed, but it's still a very, very difficult population to recruit to. But our hospital here do exceedingly well yeah. in that department. Yeah, we've got a fantastic team. We are actually, the neonatal unit is a clinical research facility in its own right here. Wow. So it's it's got an amazing team and a very incredible um, lead uh, consultant who oversees all the research at our trust. The whole delivery team as well are very well trained in um, informed consent and how to approach potential participants. It's important to, to reiterate that you are under no obligation to take part. This is entirely voluntary. Um, you can say no for any reason and it makes no difference at all to your routine care. You can say, yes, sign up today and then change your mind tomorrow. It's absolutely fine. At any point, you can withdraw. You don't need to even give us a reason. And I think the more we reiterate that, the more we keep those communication links open and we're very transparent with everybody, that, that helps a lot of people, especially in, in the example you were given there, Amy, about um, new families and, and early babies giving them the background behind why we're doing something and reiterating that it, they're under no pressure to take part and it's not going to affect any care that we give them from the entire team. That puts a lot of people at ease. Yeah, they, they don't feel pressured. And what are the reasons that some maybe in that situation say, actually, yeah, go for it? Do, I mean, do you, do you hear from them? Do they say, oh, you know, happy to try anything? Type, is that kind of their response? Or there, there isn't a... There isn't a set mother or father or potential participant who 
you would be able to bet what their outcome would be. It really does depend on how they're feeling and what they understand about research. A lot of people feel like research is about guinea pigs. Yes, they don't understand that clinical research can happen in a hospital for every single patient. It's an education that's necessary for everybody to recognise. Everybody knows about cancer research because it's a huge charity. Every single piece of research that happens in this hospital is for exactly the same reason that they have cancer research. We are looking to improve the outcomes for patients and make the care better for every single, you know, every single person alive. We want to improve patient care. Can't do it without research. You were talking about sensitive populations or those that might be difficult to recruit to. Another element is being in Norfolk, we are very widespread um, and we've got a huge population on, for example, the North Norfolk coast that potentially don't come to the Norfolk and Orange Hospital. Perhaps they go to Cromer Hospital. So it's important to make sure we're able to reach out to everybody, that everybody has the same opportunities to research and not just those that walk through our front doors. So having strong links with Cromer, having strong links with GP practices in your primary care across the, the region um, and linking in as much as possible so that it is available for everybody. Yeah, and getting that message out as well to educate everyone, not just perhaps people who work here or who are interested in healthcare or, you know, work at the UEA or whatever, and that it's going on and that you can just ask to take part. Definitely. And do we have research going out of Corona? Uh, we do. We are pushing for more as we speak. Um, there have been studies that have been run there or um, elements of the study that have been run there, such as recruitment or follow-up visits. It's smaller than the Norfolk and Norwich. It, it has a minor injuries unit. It is very much a day case type area. There's, there's no overnight beds. So we're limited as to what studies could run there in their entirety. But there is no reason why if you're running a clinic, for example, for a Chroma, you can't use that as a research clinic, but you can't approach some of your participants that day into studies. A lot of studies, if, if they require follow-up visits of any kind, um, a lot of travel expenses are covered. And it's important to include that as part of your um, information giving and, and at the consent process so that people understand it in its entirety they they shouldn't be out of pocket in any way which helps to people that do live further afield you know it, it sometimes it is a big ask for somebody to give up a, a, a half day to come to hospital for something that they wouldn't necessarily need I mean it's great that you get this extra attention and the the one-to-one -one links and someone else looking at, at you in in your and condition, for example, that extra set of eyes. But it it can also be difficult to fit into your lifestyle if you work full-time, if you have a family to raise, you have to get back for childcare and uh, reasons, and making sure that it's it's not a burden to any participants to take part. It's, um, it's a very difficult process. In no way would we ever coerce someone to take part in a study. Um, it would always come down to what they wanted to do and um, that the people shouldn't be out of pocket for it.
is there anything that stands out in your mind as um, a particular study that's really been life-changing or really changed the way we do things? There are, there are a couple. Many, many studies change our standards of care, our, the practice that we, you know, how we deliver our care. Um, there are too many, really, too many to speak of. But certainly um, in NICU paediatrics, and I'm pretty sure across the general wards, our practice is changing continually as a result of the research that's going on. One study that we did 20 odd years ago in the neonatal intensive care unit was looking at cooling babies with brain injury at birth. And the results were so outstanding. Um, that very, very soon after the trial finished, we kept the machines that cooled our babies. It worked in a way that um, they were wrapped, the babies were wrapped in something that looked like bubble wrap, but it, their core body temperatures were cooled. And it reduced the swelling in the brain, which would prevent further brain injury. Um, and it will, you know, that's life changing on the families in the future. So we've saved hundreds of lives because of that and improved the quality of hundreds of lives, families. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. That's just one example. We've had some studies that have been really obvious that they are working. And so with a study where you're randomized to receive a treatment or not to receive a treatment, and it's been quite clear very early on that those participants that are receiving treatment are getting far better outcomes. So it's it's unethical to carry on because the, the placebo participant groups are, are losing out. They are. Mm. Um, so the, the study was then stopped nationally in order to roll this medication out up and down the country because it was quite clear from, from the off. The same as if there was any issues anywhere along the line, safety-wise, it would be stopped straight away it can be reversed. And a lot of people don't often realise that. On that note, obviously when COVID happened, there was the big push, wasn't there, nationally? I think you said they halted any other research and made everyone focus on public health research. How quickly, if when you have that example of something that was quite clearly working, you know, how quickly does that then get rolled out? And does, or does that depend? Or is that down to other agencies and government? It is down to other agencies and the government. Um, but COVID is a great example you know, how long did it take us to go from, yes, it's a pandemic, this is COVID, to now we've got the first vaccine ready to roll out to the public. And treatments, the treatments that were available very, very quickly, knowing how to treat those patients, which I believe has been as valuable as the vaccine. Mm. Because if people are very, very sick with COVID now, the treatments that we're able to offer them, they saved millions of lives. Going on from how the participants can take part in research, which we mentioned about um, be part of research and just asking at your next appointment when you next walk through the door what's available. And um, the same question kind of goes to nursing staff, practitioners, clinicians, you know, how do you want to get part? How do you want to take part in research? Um, there's multiple courses available. Uh, you can become an associate principal investigator on a study that's already um, 
going through the, 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 that's about to be run in your trust, um, I would suggest, again, contacting your delivery teams and asking what's happening already in the specialty or the area that you're working in. It might be that you've got a question you want to ask and you want to develop your own protocol and, and start your own research study. There are multiple grants available and we have um, a, a very good research and development department that can help signpost you to the best potential grant to apply for in order to, to successfully run that study. Um, literally make contact, find out who your team is, find us on the internet, just drop us an email, introduce yourself, what your area of interest is and start the ball rolling. Perfect. So I guess the message is to patients and to staff is get involved. Let us know. Come and join and take part in research. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you both very much. It's been really interesting and I hope you get some more participants in your research. Thank you very much. Would you like to sign up? Thank you as ever to Amy and Louise for their time and sharing their expertise and some examples of how research we've carried out here is helping our patients. Just a reminder that you can listen back to other topics we've covered on the podcast, including organ donation, emergency nursing and sustainability in healthcare, just to name a few. You can have a look at the library of the episodes on our website. And please share this episode with your friends, colleagues and family who you think might be interested. Until next time, take care.